Well, I planted a garden this year. And I was really excited about it. You know, I planted tomatoes and squash and pumpkins, but then for the first time, I decided to plant carrots. I'd never done it before, but I thought, oh, my daughters would probably have fun, you know, pulling up a carrot and seeing how big it was. And, and so one day, I went into the garden to kind of check things out, and what was sprouting up from the ground just about took my breath away. I took a picture of it so you can see um, how much of this carrot was coming out. Okay, so that looks massive, right? Like, I looked at that and thought, I am a really good gardener. This is going to be a giant carrot. I mean, it might be the size of, I don't know, my daughter's head or something like that. I was really, really excited. And I pull it up, and it turns out it, it wasn't quite what I was expecting. Here's what it actually was. Now, how does that grow from that? I mean, that didn't make any sense to me. I really thought, ah, oh, this is going to be giant. But it, it turns out that I wasn't seeing the full picture. What was growing above the ground wasn't the full picture of what was actually in the ground. And I'm not nearly as good of a gardener as I thought I was. And that happens to us all the time, where we don't get the full picture. Maybe we think we're getting the full picture, but then in conversation or event, you realize, I'm just getting some of the information, and I'm not getting the full picture that I really need. That happens in our personal lives, but that also happens in the church. Yeah, we're going to study a story today where that happened. It was in the church in Corinth, and the Apostle Paul, he started this church. He planted it, and he hears that they're celebrating communion together. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper, which is a great thing, right? But then he realizes he's not getting the full picture of what's happening. No, there's, there's something about the way that they're celebrating communion, which is very wrong. And I thought today, the day of World Communion Sunday, that this would be a fascinating text to explore of how this church that Paul started was going so wrong with how they celebrated communion. So our story picks up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Here is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Oh, all right, Paul is not happy. I mean, what sort of meeting in the church could do more harm than good? Uh, to me, it would be surprising that anything in the church could be described in this way, but what you're about to find out is what Paul is describing here is communion. He says that the way that this church in Corinth is celebrating communion is doing more harm than good. All right, that's, that's a pretty significant statement. What exactly were they doing wrong? Well, let's read on to find out. Paul says, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Okay, so I highlighted a couple words there, and I want you to start by focusing on those words, come 
together because Paul uses those very specifically for, for a reason. Um, those words in Greek uh, mean sunerkome, and in Greek, what they mean is uh, well, it's twofold. The first meaning is to come together physically. So that's what you guys did today. You are gathering physically together. Sorry, people online, we love you, but you're not sooner come. You're not gathering together physically today, right? So we are physically assembled as a church. That's one meaning for what it means to gather together. But there's a second meaning that Paul knew of as well. And the second meaning was to be united spiritually. And that's where we do include those who are watching online. Even if we're not gathered together physically, we can be united spiritually. Paul, recognizing both of these elements of coming together, tells the church in Corinth, all right, you guys are gathering together physically, but spiritually you're divided. There's something that's getting in the way of your unity. You are divided. Well, what's causing the division? What is causing the division, particularly in when they're trying to celebrate communion? Let's read on to find out. Paul says, so then, when you come together, when you sooner come, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. The church in Corinth, while they were celebrating communion, you had some people on this side getting drunk, and some people on this side going hungry, not eating anything at all. I grew up in the church, so I've celebrated communion on many, many occasions. I find it such a significant act of worship, but I have never experienced communion in the way that Paul describes it here, with some people getting nothing and others getting drunk. What is going on in the church in Corinth? Well, to understand it, what we need to do for a second is we need to, to compare how we celebrate communion today in the 21st century and compare it to how they celebrated communion back then in the church in Corinth in the first century. Okay, so that's going to help us figure out what was going on here. But let's start with today. How do we celebrate communion today? Well, today, communion is highly symbolic right? Every, everything we use is a symbol. It's got a deeper meaning. And so Pastor Dana or I will take the bread and say, this is what the bread means. We'll take the cup and say, this is what the cup means. We'll say, when we gather around this table, even though you're not physically gathering all around one table, this is what this represents. Today, communion is all about symbols. That was not the case in the first century, okay? So you're going to have to unlearn how you do communion today in order to learn how they did it when Paul was writing. So when Paul was writing, they actually had a meal together. 
when you celebrated communion, you wouldn't come for just a little piece of bread and know the symbol behind that bread. But you would gather with the church and have an actual supper together. And as you had that supper together, you would talk about the deeper meanings of communion and why it is you are doing that. I mean, that sounds pretty good, right? But there's some things here as we examine this that weren't going quite right. So for the first part, let's dive in a little bit deeper to the first century. The first thing you need to understand is that in the first century, there were no church buildings. Remember, it was illegal to be a Christian. So in the first century, if you were going to gather with your church for communion, you did so in an individual's home. Someone would invite the whole church over. In the first century, all churches were house churches. You couldn't just buy property and say, that is our church. So people would gather in a home for communion. But we've done some studies of archaeology of what the buildings and homes looked like in this time period. And what we found was that even in the wealthiest homes, the dining rooms could only fit a maximum of about nine people. So if you're having a whole church over, and you're having a meal together, but you can only fit nine people in the dining room, what do you do about that? Well, what we found was that they had usually these larger outdoor areas, these kind of courtyards that could fit another 30 to 40 people. So when the church would gather in a person's home, nine of you would go eat in the dining room. And then the rest of you would go eat in this kind of outside area. Okay, so we're seeing a little bit of what was happening and going, all right, that, that is different, that's different, but, but what's the problem? Like, what was actually going wrong with this? Well, if you dig a little bit deeper into this specific situation, here's what was happening. The host, meaning the one who owned the home and was inviting the whole church to come and take communion together, the host was usually one of the wealthier people who had a larger home, a good reputation in the community, one of the more prestigious members of the church. And he would invite his friends, his more wealthy friends, his more prestigious and well-respected friends of the church, and they would all eat in the dining room together. Now remember, the dining room can only fit about nine people. And so then everyone else in the church would go eat outside. So already you're going, oh, that doesn't feel quite right, right? Your whole, your church, you're together in this, but you're dividing yourself. But then we found out that those in the dining room were served the nicest wine and the nicest food. And those on the outside in the courtyard were served less nice wine and less nice food. Yes, you had then this divide in the church when you're all supposed to be celebrating the sacrament of communion together. You might be wondering, why? Why would the church do this? But it turns out they were simply reflecting the first century culture. The culture in Corinth and in Rome frequently did this because they graded people. They would look at people from different social classes and make distinctions among them. This was common practice, where they'd say, oh, you're better than you because of this reason and this reason and this reason. And then they would tell you to your face. 
there's a fascinating letter that was saved from the first century from a uh, Roman official. So he's in kind of high society. His name was Pliny. But he writes about one of these dinner parties. And uh, when we read it, we can kind of imagine what these parties or what these dinners or communions were like in the first century. So here's how Pliny describes it. He says, the best dishes were set in front of himself, meaning the host, and a select few, and cheap scraps of food before the rest of the company. He had even put the wine into tiny flasks, divided into three categories, not with the idea of giving his guests the opportunity of choosing, but to make it impossible for them to refuse what they were given. One lot was intended for himself and for us, another for his lesser friends, and then parentheses, all his friends are graded, and a third for his and our freedmen, which were what they call their slaves. I want to draw your attention to those words in the parentheses where he's writing, saying, oh yeah, all of his friends are graded. Can you imagine grading your friends today? I mean, just for a second, I want you to imagine you're hosting a dinner party, and someone knocks on the door, you open it, and you go, I'm so glad you're here. You're one of my best friends. Here, take this. You are my A-plus friend. And, and so I want you to take this and sit in the, the biggest room in my house. We got the big screen TV on the wall. I've ordered an, an all-you-can-eat buffet, and here's a glass of wine. It's been being aged for 10 years. Okay, so you take this, you go and sit down and enjoy the dinner party. And then, then there's another knock on the door. You open it and go, I'm so glad you're here. You are my C friend. You are just an average friend. I want you to take this and why don't you go sit in the, in the basement. We've got a TV there. It's, it's small and black and white, kind of grainy. But there's an antenna. You can figure it out. Uh, there's some leftover pizza in the fridge. It might still be good. And, and oh, here's a glass of, of tap water. Can you imagine? We absolutely would not do that today, at least so explicitly. And yet this is how the first century operated. What you need to understand is that the church then was mirroring the values of their broader culture, to which Paul then strongly responds. And Paul says to them, the church cannot mirror these same values. The church must be different from the culture around it, because the Lord's table is not for a select few. It is for everyone, and nobody should feel more or less valued when they are gathering around that table. Now that you know the context of what was going on, I want to reread that last paragraph because I think you'll be able to pick up the, the nuance a little bit better now. So Paul says, So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, meaning some people are going to eat in the dining room while others are eating in the courtyard. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. 
the nicest food and wine is reserved for the dining room. And everyone else in the church, you can go eat the not nice stuff. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Paul's saying, if you're going to act like that, do it at home. Don't bring that cultural value into the church. Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Meaning that those who come to church and aren't the most well-respected in society, or maybe don't have much money, are they walking in and around the Lord's Supper, are they going hungry? Paul says, what shall I say to you? Like he's speechless. Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Okay, so here's the point for today, right? For today's church, for you and for me. The point is that it doesn't matter how you came to church today. It doesn't matter how maybe well-respected you are in society or how much money that we have. It, it doesn't matter if we have a prestigious title or not because in the church and in this church, we are all equal. Yeah, at the Lord's table, we are all equal. In God's eyes, we are all equal, which is what makes World Communion Sunday just so darn amazing. It, it, there's a universal quality to it where all people on earth can gather as one and be viewed as one, not better or worse. We don't you know, find divisions among us, even though it's so easy to divide ourselves. No, on a Sunday like today, we declare we are one, equally valued by God. That's a big statement to make in even this culture today, and it certainly was in the first century. When I think about this, I, I recognize that God's people are given many different names in the Bible, right? They're called the people of God, or or Christians, or Christ followers, but today, on World Communion Sunday, I, I want us to think about ourselves by a different name. We are the family of God. And how do you treat your family? Well, you treat your family as if you're all equal, right? You treat your family not like one person is better than another, but that you're all family. And on World Communion Sunday, when we gather around that table, we are the family of God together. So Paul, up until this point, has written about how not to do communion. And now he's going to share with us how we should do communion. And this, this is going to be important. These are instructive words for us today. Here is how we should celebrate the sacrament of communion. In the next verse, Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I wonder, what themes do you notice in how Paul says we should celebrate communion? I notice the theme of remembrance. 
I mean, how many times does Paul say, remember, remember? We remember that Jesus gave his very self to us. Jesus freely gave his body to us. He allowed himself to be crucified on a cross. And so when we eat that bread, we remember together as the family of God that we also should give ourselves freely to God and to God's purposes in the world. We remember when we drink the cup that God has created a new covenant, a new community, a new people, the church of which we are all a part of and in which we are all equal. And when we participate with the cup, what used to be wine, what we now do as grape juice, we don't argue about who gets the best wine, but instead we remember that we're all part of the family of God, equal in God's eyes. And we remember that Jesus has died and that Jesus will come again. We are living in between those two realities. Yes, in communion, there's a intermingling of memory and hope, where we look back to what God has done and look forward to what God has yet to do. This is the proper way to celebrate communion. Now, I want to just fast forward to the very end of this discussion, and this is how Paul summarizes the whole thing. So he's, he's told the people in Corinth, this is what you're doing wrong. He's told them this is how we should celebrate it together. And then he says, so then, meaning in conclusion, based off of everything I said, my brothers and sisters, my family of God, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. We are together in this, right? Family of God, we come today to eat together. We remember what God has done together. We look forward to the ways that we can be the body of Christ in this world together. Whether we're worshiping in Lincolnton, like the new Artisan Church, or worshiping right here in Denver, or we're worshiping online, wherever you are, we are together united in one body because of what Christ has done for us. Those who are celebrating communion in America, those who are celebrating it in Africa or Asia or to the farthest reaches of the globe, today we are together, united in Christ Jesus. On this World Communion Sunday, we gather united together as the family of God. Amen.